So I'm here with Dr. Jane Potter um, after the first workshop in the Monumental Strand. Um, Jane is a uh, reader in arts at Oxford Brookes University. Um, Jane, you're first and foremost a scholar of First World War literature and culture as well as publishing. Um, where do you encounter commemoration in your work? Um, I think in lots of different ways. If I think with my sort of book historian's hat on, and somebody who teaches the history of publishing, that publishing itself, particularly in wartime, is a kind of commemoration um, and produces memorial volumes, um, books that are, you know, both said that they are sort of memorial volumes, whether they're um, in memory of, of, of a poet who's died, whether they are um, compilations by work sold for charities. These are kind of monuments. Um, but also just the literature or the nonfiction or the writing that's produced as a kind of um, a, a memorial in words. Um, yeah. And I was thinking about um, uh, Daniel Liebskin's um, lecture last night, and I think he was quoting Derrida about saying how um, you can erase words, um, but you can't... Um, erase sort of buildings and I think actually in some ways the opposite is true that yeah. you can easily take down buildings and destroy buildings but words and language you may erase the physical book you could take it offline you could um, cease to read it but it remains in people's memories especially poetry when you recite things or you remember certain passages that are then spoken yeah or rewritten or you know kind of copied out in books somewhere else or someone's yeah. notebook so in a sense yeah. it's it's a memorial in that way so I think in in that way um, language itself or the written word and the spoken word themselves are, are monuments and memory commemorating um, materials. Yeah, I agree. I think that rewriting and reciting, it's interesting that they're both re-words. Exactly. Um, really sum up that kind of um, memorialising. Um, so what stood out for you today at the panel workshop um, you've just chaired? Well, I think probably following on from your, that, that sense of... Um, of re-reading, re-memorializing um, this process. I mean, that was a word that came up a lot in the panels. Yeah. And the sense of reconstructing the memory and every generation revisits um, both physically, and you know, think of it in terms of the First World War, like with the with the battlefield tours, making kids go and visit, revisit. Yeah. Um, and the sort of rehashing of memory um, recording, re-recording memory. So I think that has come up so much in this day and that how much is renegotiated continually. And that yeah. that's an important part of it, that, that the memory or the what is commemorated is not static. People's reputations change over time um, and so forth. So I think that sense of the movement and fluidity of commemoration, despite these sort of monumental, seemingly stable bits of granite or big horses or whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, thinking again of that sort of overlap between textual culture and kind of material culture. So your um, book, <coughs> Boys in Khaki, Girls in Print, was about, I mean, it was all about a lot of things, but it was, a, <laughs> it was about material culture, material First World War um, culture. And you're now editing Wilfred Owen's um, letters for Oxford University Press, which in my mind promises to be a monumental edition. 
Um, do you think of these things, um, say physical books, um, letters, material texts, as monumental? Yes, way? I do. Um, monument, perhaps not in the grand sense, but as a monument in terms of memory or memento mori or whatever, yeah. and that they, I mean, they all have the same kind of root, those, those words, and I think... Um, Archives present a really interesting case of that, um, both in terms of where they're dispersed. So Owen's letters are in Texas um, because there was a contested issue around um, the Bodleian not taking them in the 1970s when Owen's reputation was not as big as it is now. Um, And that's the case for lots and lots of archives from different countries. Um, But the physicality, the materiality of seeing the letters... I yeah. think is quite powerful, which you don't get when it's online yeah. or even reading a transcription. And despite how many hands have probably touched those letters, there's a real connection with the person who wrote them. And I think that's not just true of Owen, um, but, of, but of other letters as well. And also, I think archives as monuments, for all the reasons we've talked about today in terms of who makes those choices about what goes into an archive, what is material that is Mm. good Mm. or worthy, and what is excised, what is excluded. So I think archives in particular um, are monuments and raise the same questions as the sort of statues and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all kinds of issues to do with um, preservation, um, mm. I guess. Mm. So, um, as um, literature scholars, we're always thinking about sort of language at its, uh, I suppose, at its extremities and, and what it is that language can and can't achieve. And um, is there a sense, do you have a sense of what physical monuments, and that can be as loose a definition as you like, can do for people that text can't? Um, well, I think it, it it comes down to sort of literacy and engagement yeah. with reading, um, with, I suppose, poetry and literature, depending on what it is, is harder to grasp, grasp for some people than for others. Mm-hmm. If we think of modernist text, that's not a, something the average reader can get through. Yeah. Um, and even academics find Ulysses challenging and yes. Parade's End is a challenging text. Yeah. So if you don't have that training or the perseverance um, to sort of carry on with those kinds of things, um, a monument, a simple poem, um, lines of poetry like Binion that's on the war memorials mm. that are visual but also spoken mm. um, are doing things that those more, say, complex texts or big history tomes don't tell you. So they do stand yeah. in for something. Yeah. But without the language to go with it, as we saw today, thinking about what a meaning of a memorial is, you know, Tiapvel has a symbolic value that can be understood when you're told what it is, and yet we can come to it and see it for itself. But it has so many other meanings. So yeah. Yeah, um, um, there's also that, um, what made, you made me think when you um, said carving simple poems on monuments, there's also touch as well, Absolutely. actually being able to touch the letters and feel them cut into the stone, I think, does something that the, that the 
sight of the words alone can't do. Absolutely. And I mean, that was really brought home with um, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial or the, the wall where people were, you know, touching yeah. the um, the names or doing kind of rubbings of the names yeah. because there's no body to touch. So the names become really important. Um, and that's that's often the only physical connection or a gravestone. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And people go up to gravestones. And I mean, when I've, I've gone to visit sort of Wilfred Owen's grave, there's this compulsion to touch. I've seen people grave. stroking gravestones, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. so thinking about the First World War in particular, so we're now in 2018, so this is the last of the centenary years, and um, it's been very much in focus in, in this country, and by the sound of it, to, today in Australia a lot. Um, and we've been thinking this morning about sort of the longevity and the shelf life of, of um, memorials and commemoration. Do you think now the... First World War has been commemorated enough so that when we get to the 11th of um, November this year, we can say, right, enough already, we'll, that's it now. I think there was a worry the saturation would have reached, would have, we would have reached saturation probably at the end of 2014, yes. frankly. But um, I think that's always been a concern about the commemorations. It's always been part of the discourse around the various plans from the government and from community organizations. And I mean, I work on the First World War, and even I think, oh, gosh, have we overdone it a bit? Um, there's the milestones for each of the sort of battles. Um, uh, there's so many books being published. There's a real imperative by publishers to get things done by 2018. Yeah. And as, as academics, we know that this material has a longevity beyond the commemoration. So there's a real tension between hitting that moment in terms of the commodity culture around the war. Yeah. Um, and I would think for tourism as well. Yeah. And, and seeing it in a longer view, which has always been the hope, I think, of anybody working in the commemoration period, whether it's literature, history or sociology, that we come out with a different narrative at the end than one that we began with. That there is a more contextualized more inclusivity, which is a big thing yes. of the day, yes. and yeah. this idea that marginalized voices have been heard. So in that sense, you know, you can't have too much of marginalized voices because there always seems to be people that we weave out of the narrative. Yeah. So that's been a good thing. Yeah. But I think some of the more razzmatazz elements of the events um, have perhaps given people a bit of, you know, we'll get to, to, to November 2018, and I would imagine the general population will be, you know, thank God for that. It's yeah. over <laughs> like people in, you know, 1918, but yes. for different reasons. Yes. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, speaking um, personally, what would you say would be the, um, the most meaningful commemorative monument that you've encountered? Um, I thought about this because there's quite a few, you know, and I'm kind of different ones that I see I have different reactions to, and there's a few that do stick in my mind. I mean, obviously, Wilfred Owen's grave sticks in my mind, both because I'm working on him, but I've always read him. So, mm. um, And also, I think the, that's very much about its position. It's where it's located and its surroundings. We talked a lot about the surroundings yeah. today. And Owen's grave is in a, a British military cemetery, but a much smaller one in the village of Oris. And there's another military, British military cemetery in Oris, 
which is separate. Um, and so the one that Owen's in is at the back of the communal cemetery. So in order to get to Owen's grave, you usually walk through the graves of French citizens and so forth who've lived in the village. Um, and they vary in sort of years. There's really old graves to ones that say post-date, so from the Second World War, for instance. And so to get to this little kind of corner of England, yeah. you go through the French graves, and it's set within this kind of, um, you know, bit of farm, essentially. And Owen's grave is amongst these others that of the people he served with. And then when you're facing his gravestone, you face out to the village and the fields beyond. So the feel of that place is really very moving. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it is a site of pilgrimage. Every time you go, there's people have left little things there, palms, yeah. not just flowers and stuff, and things eventually get rained on, and I think they eventually get taken away by the Graves Commission and tidy it up, and then more stuff comes. Yeah. And I find it really moving kind of where that where he sits amongst these other soldiers' graves that who writes about very movingly, of course, in the poems. Yeah. So that's one, and that's always really special. Yeah. Um, the other one is the Forester's House, which is was was redone. So the Forester's House was where he was billeted with other people in the smoky cellar of the Forester's House, which he writes about in his last letter. And that had just been an old sort of 19th century brick, for, literally Forester's house, which the French government bought, or the, the commune of, of um, Cateau Cambrésis bought it and had it done as a sort of art installation, which at, at the beginning horrified the British members of the Wilfred Owen Association because they liked the old style kind of rundown bit, mm -hmm. but were converted by this new structure. And so it's all white and they've left the cellar as it is, but they've made it a kind of art project, but also a space. The rest of the house is kind of just this blank space for concerts and things, but has Owen's poems projected onto the walls. And as you go into the cellar, there's a, a sort of um, a walkway. And along the circular wall are the words of Owen's last letter. So it's beautifully done. And it's meant to be this monument as well as a space that people would come um, for events. Yeah. Um, so that, those are the two Owen ones that I think are really interesting in terms of beautifully. totally yeah. different commemorative sorts of things, yeah. but absolutely really powerful. Yeah. Um, and then the other one that I just went to, um, visited was, um, Notre Dame Lorette, de Lorette, Notre Dame de Lorette, um, which is the one that is, um, has been built near the old ossuary, of Notre Dame and um, it's the ring of memory mm. and along this sort of all, all this sort of, the walls are just um, with all the names of those who fought on the Somme regardless of nationality and so it's all by it's all alphabetical all the way along and you just keep walking and all you see are the names and um, that's really quite something. So again, it's this naming, carving names on walls, yeah. carving names on stone Yeah. that I find really interesting. But I think also mixing the names. So one of the, is, is I haven't really come across that, you know, how mm. presumably French and German or French Everywhere. and British oh, and yeah. German. Yeah. 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 Um, 
one of the most moving ones I went to was the um, the German cemetery um, uh, by the Normandy beaches. Oh yeah. Where the stones are so low down, and it's yes. by a, it's not prime real estate at all. It's by yes. a very busy road. Yes. It's one of the saddest places it I've is. been to actually. Yes. And, and it just sometimes says two German soldiers. Yes. Yes. And it's the hierarchy of the yeah. suffering, you know, clearly. And yes. Normandy itself, the American cemetery, is just vast. Glorious, yeah. And it's it, the juxtaposition of that with the beaches that everyone is carrying on yeah. their lives, the sort of the pristineness and the, the layout of the graves set against the sort of more monumental entranceway with this these huge sort of... Um, um, you know, columns and statues and this, you know, really kind of, and it, it is just this very strange, but also very spooky, I think, ground, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. So um, we started to think a little bit about sort of comparative um, perspectives, and, and you have a transatlantic perspective. Um, so is it your sense that, and you could talk about it in the first one if you wanted to, that um, American and um, British people do commemoration differently? Mm, I think so. Um, I haven't lived there for a long time now. <laughs> um, but no, and I think there is a real move in the States to try and commemorate the First World War with the sort of um, museum. Um, but, you know, the U.S. wasn't, quote-unquote, in it for as long, although where there were many um, Americans who served independently in other forces before the U.S. entered the war in 1917. But in terms of the national memory, it's sort of less resonant than World Mm. War II. That Mm. was the good war. That was the war that made America, essentially. Um, And then Vietnam was a whole other kettle of fish. Um, And we've had wars since. I think there's always my sense that, that the British commemorate wars more quietly like the ceremonies are I mean they they aren't because if you think of the psalm it's the the psalm you know um 2016 Mm. 100 year thing was a big production but Mm. it wasn't it it didn't have that sort of Hollywood feel in the same way I think British stuff is becoming perhaps more yeah Hollywoodized in a way yeah but there's a I think the individual memorialization within sort of towns and cities and that idea that everything stops on the 11th of November which has of course been brought back in you don't get in the states and that might be because it's so much more spread out yeah there's a different um cohesion there you know you it, it it is different I think the American psyche probably changed a lot after 9-11 because up until then America wasn't invaded yes. except for Pearl Harbor. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. It seems to me as well maybe the this is, uh, veterans are, have a different role in national life in America yeah. than they do in Britain. Um, there's more sort of maybe mystique surrounding veterans in America, possibly. It's diff- I think it's very difficult. Um, it's it is different. I mean, I grew up in the sort of Vietnam generation and and so was little when that kind of finished. And mm. so that's the narrative I remember through right. grade school and high school and that grappling in the sort of 80s in particular with the narrative of Vietnam and how that changed, even though my father was a veteran of World War II and all of my parents' friends. So I had that narrative in my head. 
but also the Vietnam narrative. And you had these, these two polar opposites between the veterans of the Second World War is because it was the good war and they came back. The ones that did come back where they're buried in Normandy and we remember. Yeah. Um, or you have um, um, the Vietnam veterans, which were either baby killers, depending on what side of the, the sort of war stance that you um, um, were on, or as victims, yeah. you know, the deer hunter kind of narrative. Yes. So, and the traumatized veterans. So that idea of the, the, the veteran as being hugely traumatized really comes yeah. to the fore in, yeah. in, in the Vietnam War and in the reconsiderations afterwards. Yeah. And it was such a divisive war for the states in a way that I'm trying to think an equivalent now perhaps with Iraq and Afghanistan, but I think generally the sense of the reception of the veterans, at least, it's the government that they're mad at, not at the Turkey. veterans, which in Vietnam was much more divisive. And it Even divided though it was a, a conscript, it was a drafted army in Vietnam. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's because, and the reason part of that, that was so divisive was because you could get deferments. If you were white, oh, if yes, you were in school, should, yeah. if you stayed in graduate school, um, if you had... Um, what feet bone spurs that our president had, whatever you could get out of it. Yeah. Or you could uh, do something other than, you know, um, be in the worst of the combat zones. Yeah. Um, And that was down to privilege. And so that's why it was also hugely divisive. Sure. Yeah. So with all that in mind, I'm thinking, I suppose about what we talked about this morning, is there anything you'd like to say about how you see the future of commemoration, as in what you'd like to see? Is there any one thing you'd like to see, how it might be done differently, or that you think will happen, or should happen? I think, I mean, I'd like to hope there's more recognition of sort of women's roles. I mean, we've come a long way for that, but even just around thinking about um, the recent... um, anniversary of the suffrage um, um, and I was struck by um, Emma's um, illustration today of people inscribing women's names onto war memorials yes. you know <laughs> yes. and I think actually I, I we don't have that same kind of commemoration and I think I'd like to perhaps see more of that or and how you commemorate it, I don't know. The Women's Second World War Memorial was really divisive because mm. it, you know, on one hand people liked it, on the other hand it was clothes, so we're reducing yes. women to um, to their fashion. Um, yes. And I don't really still have a much memorials to women in the First World War. You have one at the Scottish National War Memorial, and you have one in York. Okay. Yeah. Um, in York Minster. So I think more recognition, I think, of, of women. And I think that will have to become much more part of it when you were now would be commemorating female veterans who were in combat positions. Yeah. Um, and I get, yes, more inclusivity of the sort of marginalized voices. Yeah. Um, yeah. Be nice not to have to kind of commemorate wars, but I have to say, I think, you know, we're, it's going to be with us for a long time. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much. Thank you for that, and thank you for sharing this morning. Thank you. You're welcome.